Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I guess if you're going to get people's attention, the best way to do it is surround it with boobs. What the f*** is wrong with you people? You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Gentles and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Archie Fantasies Podcast, episode 22. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host, Ken Fader. And today, we're talking about the legend of the lighthouse. Ken shares with us a very touching story about how archaeology can be used to reach out to communities and help build ties with local peoples. Get ready for a good story and to think critically. Monuments. Going to the pub when the day is spent. Funny beady blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host, Ken Fader. Hi, Sarah, how are you? And Ken, you are going to talk to us about some research that you have just recently finished up or are still continuing? Well, it's more or less finished, yeah. Um, okay. It, it, the, the kind of intro for... For all this, the preface. Yeah, give us a background, background here. Is. And the reason, the reason I wanted to talk about this today is that um, Sarah has just told me that this is episode what twenty two. Twenty two. So I mean, this is uh, this is what this one's for the ages, number twenty two, and you know, <laughs> legal. Woo! <laughs> there you go. There you go. The um, I mean, everybody who listens to this, if if you're an, uh, a long time listener, or if this is you're brand new to this. The whole the raison d'etre, the reason for the existence of this podcast. Well, look at the title of it: it's archaeological fantasies, right? Archie fantasies. So we're looking at um, sort of extreme claims made in the name of archaeology, extreme claims made about human antiquity, the human past, and and how archaeologists, scientists who want to know what really happened, respond to those things. How we talk, how we respond to claims about ancient ancient astronauts or the lost continent of Atlantis. Um, psychic archaeology, out-of-place artifacts, and on and on and on and on. And I thought it would be nice today to, to go at this from a little bit of a different perspective, um, and that is to look at a, a real archaeological um, pro, uh, project. This happens to be one of mine, um, and it's a, pro, a real project that has at its core a mystery. Right? We, we begin with the mystery, and when I first heard about this place, the, the, the story didn't seem legit. It, it seemed, well, it must be exaggerated. It, it's, it's kind of a legend, and, and let's, let's see if we can apply the archaeological, um, archaeological methods, archaeological techniques, to discovering how much of that story or legend that's been long told here in northwestern Connecticut, how much of it is legit, and I, was, I would have been... Um, completely satisfied, and I would not have been surprised at all to to find out that the legend, in fact, um, bears very little relationship to the reality on the ground, the actual archaeology. 
In fact, though, this is one of those really cool instances in which the legend that's at the core of the story behind the archaeological site we excavated fundamentally is true, that most of the, the, the essential qualities, the essential claims made in the legend, we can prove, we can support with archaeological and documentary evidence. But so that's the cool. So this is we're coming at this from a different perspective. Here's instead of, hey, this is a claim made by non-archaeologists and we're going to debunk it. Here's one in which I encountered a legendary story, a mystery, um, ended up at the site where all this mystery and legend is supposed to have occurred and then actually was able to test it out on the ground, both, in, both archaeologically on the ground and in the um, the, 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 the town um, town offices across northwestern Connecticut, looking at primary documentary okay. evidence. So you're in Connecticut, right. and Connecticut's, what, 400 years old? Uh, Connecticut, the, the oldest um, settlements in Connecticut date back to 1630. So we're not quite 400 years old. So we go back some ways, right? That's whatever. Well, Virginia, Virginia just celebrated their 400th right. something or other. Right. They beat us, but right. it's much. It's nicer in Connecticut. It, that's, it's a funny thing. <laughs> it I, is nicer I in Connecticut. <laughs> because you know, the last time I, we spoke, I, I mentioned on occasion my, my 50 Sites book, my 50 Sites project, where I've been going all over the country visiting archaeological sites that are open to the public and that I'm highlighting in this, this book that's going to be coming out probably in a little more than a year from now. So I've done a lot of traveling. And it's for me, it's it's always it's a little bit disconcerting, almost jarring when I go into an old community, say in Utah, and I'm I'm a cemetery freak. I like looking at cemeteries and finding the oldest stones date back to the early 1900s. And in <laughs> Connecticut, we're looking at this, you know, the middle 1600s. That's old stuff. And these the well, towns where in the town I'm in was settled in the early 1700s. And you go around the country and it's in much of the West anyway, the towns, at least the, the the European settlements are so much later. Well, it's it's weird that you mentioned that, and this is very side tangenty, but related to what you just mentioned. When we moved into Virginia, where we are, um, because this town had been involved in a good chunk of the Civil War, and then also like later on had this massive fire, the buildings in this town, even though the area is older <coughs> than Indiana, where we moved mm. from, the buildings in Indianapolis, Indianapolis, Indiana, are actually older than the buildings here. Mm -hmm. and, and Indianapolis will be celebrating, or Indiana will be celebrating their 200th next year. Right. So it's like, it's really weird being in an area where I, I know this area is older settlement-wise than anywhere else I've ever lived. But yet, I have seen buildings that are older than the buildings here. Right. Yeah. Because everything was destroyed. There you go. But okay, so you're you're in Connecticut. You've got yourself this mystery. So what's the mystery? Well, here's here's let me tell you how I encountered this mystery. It's like the okay, this is good. Like 1985, 1986, we're doing um, a federally funded and state supported archaeological survey in a place up here, like virtually at spitting distance from where I'm sitting right now, a state forest called People's State Forest. And People's State Forest was established in like the 1930s. It was called People's because the state literally went to the people of northwestern Connecticut and said, 
could you sell us some land? We're, we're trying to put together a state forest. And by the time they were done, that it's about 4,000 acres, which for this part of the world is really, pretty is really pretty big. And it's yeah. beautiful forested, and there's a beaver meadow, and there are streams. It's, it's a beaver gorgeous, meadow. gorgeous um, forest. And, you know, hiking and backpacking, and there's camping across the river, and um, all kinds of fun stuff. So anyway, our job that summer was to do a, an, an archaeological reconnaissance survey. Uh, the state was interested in, with, with federal funding. We were able to look over that that state, that, those 4,000 acres, especially the state was concerned, well, when they're going to be doing um, some forestry, will they be disturbing archaeological sites? If they put in roads, if they put in hiking trails, they were cons they wanted to be pre proactive, right? So let's right. not wait until we want to put a trail in and put a bridge over a stream to find out if there are archaeological resources. Let's do it up front so that we'll have a That's good a base map, which is great. That's a good idea. I wish more places would do it that. Was, it was really very cool, and, the, and there was money was available, and we discovered over the course of the summer of about 10 weeks, I had a dozen field workers, we discovered probably, I think if the number is like 30 archaeological sites, which was really nice. And these were sites that we had no idea existed previously, because this That's was, cool. none of this is farmland, nobody's plowing. So that was really cool. Well, it was during one of those, um, those transects that we were conducting along the top of a ridge line, where in fact we saw some evidence of historical quarrying, granite quarrying. We followed down this trail uh, down the that was coming down from the ridge, the top of the ridge. And here in Connecticut, the top of the ridge is like 900 feet is the elevation. And we're, <laughs> we're walking down to about 400 feet. So it's not a huge mountain. Jeez. And anyhow, we came up down from this ridge onto what looked like a really nice broad terrace which itself was about oh, 75 feet above the floodplain of the river, which was down below us. Uh -huh. The river is the Farmington River. So we're on this terrace and walking around. I say, well, this would be a great place, where we, you know, based on our sampling process, our sampling procedure, we're going to put in a transect on that terrace. As we began walking around this terrace, very thickly wooded, we noticed that clearly this terrace had experienced disturbance in the past. And what I mean by that is we were seeing sort of quasi-rectangular depressions, some of which were lined with crude um, fieldstones. So it was abundantly obvious that these were some kinds of cellar holes or foundations, and we had no idea what was going on. We didn't know why those existed. We put in test pits all yeah. around this area and came up with mostly early 19th century artifacts. So these were things that, that you know, historical archaeologists looking at the, the kinds of ceramics, the kinds of, of, um, of metal, the, the kinds of, of you know, really corroded and rusted out nails, all spoke to, all gave evidence for an occupation of this area, uh, maybe the late 18th century, but certainly the early 19th century. And right. so we were pretty excited about that. And here's this is the embarrassing part of the story, Sarah. This is why <laughs> archaeologists always have to do very detailed background data on the, the land where they are doing an archaeological survey before they go out in the field. So we're, we, we, we dig up these test pits. We're pretty psyched. We're stoked about this. We come down off of the terrace, and we see that there's a, um, um, there's a, a road. Um, East River Road, very, uh, which uh -huh. used to be an old stagecoach road, but it's paved. And on the other side of the road, there is this cutout 
um, where you can park some cars, and there's a trailhead right there into the forest. And th and now we're we're looking right onto the river from this this little cutout. So we walk down to the cutout, and everybody's got their backpacks on. Everybody's got their lunches, and we break for lunch. And you know we're archaeologists, so we you know, the, the 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 cliche that all archaeologists do during lunch is tell dirty stories. That's absolutely oh, yeah. not true. After we're done telling the dirty stories for the third time, <laughs> we actually talk about the research that we're doing. And everybody was psyched about this. We, we, or if it's soda or if it's pop. We, That's the other conversation. You always have to ask, how do you pronounce, is it soda or is it pop? Where you yes. Oh, it's Coke. Yeah, all right. So, yeah. But for us, you bring your lunch in a bag. You never bring your lunch in a sack. That's That would be ridiculous. So there's, right? there's that argument too, right? But so uh, anyway, so we're, we're sitting there and we are in fact – discussing the possible explanations for what, what is this community it doesn't it's not a standard kind of colonial european um uh, the, the architecture of the, the foundations the the masonry doesn't look like a standard you know colonial um foundation so we're talking about what it could possibly be now in our neck of the woods here in southern new england there are a number of possibilities one of the things that we we got really psyched about was the possibility that we had encountered a heretofore unrecorded uh, community of freed slaves. There are a number of sites in New England that represent communities that were established by folks who had escaped from slavery in the South and who, I mean, their original plan was probably to go to Canada when they found themselves here in Connecticut surrounded by essentially by abolitionists who supported uh -huh. their having escaped from servitude in the South. So in some cases, these folks felt comfortable enough to settle in. Um, here in the, in the Northeast, not just connected to the Northeast, in, like, for example, in New Jersey, there is a community, there was a community called Skunk Hollow. And there's a wonderful book about the archaeology of Skunk Hollow. And this was a community of escaped and freed um, slaves. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Parting Ways, which is in Massachusetts near Plymouth, the uh, the earliest settlement here in New England. Well, Parting Ways was a community of, in fact, escaped and freed slaves. Um, Black Lucy's Garden is a site up in Massachusetts, which was Black Lucy was the the, the, the name the woman goes by historically, and she was in fact a, a woman of African descent who had um, who had uh, settled in Massachusetts and other escaped and freed people of African descent uh, came to her community, the, her little community in Massachusetts, and established a, a foothold here in, in New England of, again, of escaped and freed. So we, we thought, oh, my God, maybe we've got one of these because these, these communities, generally speaking, don't look like the typical European colonial settlements. And yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And, and in fact, in some cases, the actually the, um, the material culture um, what seems to be reflected in terms of, of um, ceremonialism and religion and even some of the architecture actually looks West African, which is incredibly, really? incredibly cool. One of my colleagues, Dr. Warren Perry, um, has done a bunch of work on this uh, in New York and here in New England. And it's, it's just amazing stuff. Anyway. So right. Just... No, that's, that's interesting because mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> I'll let you go, but. That's interesting to me because with the work that I did doing my undergraduate degree, uh, one of the the things that we really tried to push was that you really could not tell the the race of a person just from the archaeological evidence that was left behind. But 
You're saying that you could. Well, what, what my, my buddy... But this is much later in but, the past. Yes, but my friend and colleague, Warren Perry, what he, what he says is that what's, what has happened for a long time is that you need African eyes to see Africanisms in the material culture. So that if you're just... You're, if you, from the perspective of a European or an American-trained archaeologist, you're not seeing things that somebody who is who is necessarily a native African back in that period would recognize as a Midkisi bundle, for example, or a Sankofa symbol, that these things were, and in fact, that it's the really cool thing that, that Warren Perry and a, and a number of other scholars have, dis, have determined is that these kinds of symbols, um, these kinds of things were in fact hidden. They were hidden from greater white society because these guys, these these African people were afraid that if they were discovered practicing their own religious beliefs, that they would get in a lot of trouble. And it's right. it's a really interesting. This is a this is time for another argument. And I can even get uh, I can probably get Dr. Perry involved in this as well. Um, but so so but you know you know what it's like, Sarah. We're we're just we are blowing smoke out of our ass at this point, right? In in the field, where well, what could it be? Is it possible? You know, what <laughs> this is so cool. And while we're doing this, one of my students, one of my, my field workers, walks down the road. Now, this road, it's a, it's a road that there's some traffic on, but not very much. And so he's within, we can see him, and he's kind of in the middle of the road, and he seems to be staring at a boulder on the side of the road. And, right. you know, well, this is, you know, sometimes archaeologists, they get a little, you know, a little sunstroke, <laughs> and they're, 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 true. they do weird stuff. And his name is Bill, and Bill called out to me, and he said, "Hey, Kenny, is this important?" And I said, I, "Well, I don't know, Bill. And I'm, I'm just kind of blow him off." And he said, "No, Kenny, you ought to come over and see this." <laughs> I was like, "No, I'm eating lunch." <laughs> but I went over and saw, it, and in the, the boulder on the side of the road where he was staring at this boulder, there's a plaque, and I we wow. we had come from up above the road, so we had not seen this plaque. And I'm reading the plaque, and the plaque reads, you know. Um, this play, this part of the people's forest was given to the state of Connecticut by the Connecticut Daughters of the American Revolution, so the DAR, in like 1929. Right. And then under it, it said, near this spot was the site of an Indian village. Now, you understand, we have just been in a like an isolated village surrounded by woods. Uh, and this village is obviously old, and now we, we have no idea what it is. We're talking about what it possibly could be. And here's this plaque that says, all right, there's an Indian village right near here. And so the, you know, my, my, my student said, is this important? And I said, you know, Bill, I think that might be important. So, so what I did was the next day I had my crew out in the field, and I went kind of you know, with my tail between my legs a little sheepishly into town. But I'd been in town before. I'd been talking to folks and nobody had shared this story with me. And I went to the uh, the town library and I said, look, we're doing this archaeology project up in People's Forest. And we saw this plaque about an Indian village and we actually saw the remnants of it. We think that's what we're talking about. And who can tell me about this Indian village? And they said, oh, you mean the lighthouse? Now, just all you need to know is a tiny bit of geography. Barkhamstead, Connecticut, which is where this was, is about right. 60 miles from the coast, from the coast of Long Island Sound. So, so no good reason to have a lighthouse. There's absolutely nothing sensible about a lighthouse being in Barkhamstead. So when they said, oh, you mean the lighthouse? I say, what lighthouse? What are you talking about? Why would there be a lighthouse in Barkhamstead? And then the, the, the absolutely precious response was, oh, it's not actually a lighthouse. That's just what it's called. 
They said, oh, well, what can I find? You know, can somebody tell me something about it? They go, oh, yeah, there's a book. And they said, oh, my God, how did I miss there's this a book. Doing, the, doing the research? So they hand me this thin little self-published book, and it's called The Legend of Barkhamstead Lighthouse, and it's huh. by this fellow, Lewis Mills. Now, I recognize that and the book was published in 1952. Now, I recognize the name because a high school in Burlington, Connecticut, which is also in northwestern Connecticut, is named after him. It's the Lewis C. Mills Memorial High School. And I knew what? that Mills had been, uh, you know, he was the, the superintendent of schools, but he also was an amateur historian with some, some training in history. And he had written a couple of books about Connecticut history that were pretty well received back in the 1950s and 1960s. So Mills was the author of this book. I said, well, great. It's a nice, short little book. Maybe it'll tell me something about this place that we have just discovered. And we'll put those, the, the, we'll put discovered in quotation marks, right? So I, I bring the book home and I open it up. And Sarah, I'm immediately horrified by what I'm looking at. Oh? It's only 150 pages long, but the entire <laughs> thing is a poem. Oh. It's a 150 page long poem. And, wow. and, and the thing. Well, props to him for being able to do I that. I guess. Well, you know, exactly. And um, it's it's done in a, a, you know, I don't know, what do you call it? A rhyme, a meter. That's exactly like back in, back in the old days, Longfellow's famous poem, Hiawatha, that all kids had to learn it. By the shores of Gichigumi, yep. by the rolling big sea waters, was the village of Nakoma. Well, what Mills did was he took and, that. Ex and Ken still remembers oh, that poem. Well, just wanted to throw out there. Sarah, I'm old enough to have lived it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so so anyway, um, Mills appropriated that same you know pattern of speech for his poem. So now oh. it's it's like, you know, in the town of far Bar fair Barkhamstead by the rolling Tunxus River <laughs> was a village partly blended, partly white and partly Indian, partly from the vagabonds and early settlers. And it, and it goes, but it goes on like that for 150 pages. But here's the deal. I, initially, I'm like horrified by this. I go, oh, my God, I have to read. I like limericks, dirtier <laughs> the better, but a poem about, a, an, an, you know, a historical site, not so much. But, man, I got to tell you. I started reading it and I became absolutely transfixed because it tells this well, amazing story. All right. Here is the story told in this poem <laughs> that is in part that has been passed down in legendary well, form for like. Actually, two. I'm going to stop you before you start reading that poem. You bet. Because we're going to take a break. Absolutely. And, and I think that will be the perfect place to pick up absolutely. for after we get back from the break. So stick around and you get to hear uh, Ken's reading of the epic poem of the lighthouse. Yeah, if you turn off now, you're never going to hear about the lighthouse. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. 
Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back. And Ken, you have some epic saga-like poetry to read for us. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I think I won't terrify people by reading a poem but i'll tell the story the story as told in the poem all right i feel like at some point we need to record you reading this poem though so that people can read it it'll be like a special episode what we should do is and then sell it as something you can listen to in your car on the way to work you know ken finger reads the lighthouse story i'll do all the parts you know i'll do i'll do molly and uh, whatever so here's the (laughs) check out the story though sarah so the story starts with there's this um wealthy white woman living in the town of Wethersfield, Connecticut, which is one of the older towns, one of the oldest towns in in Connecticut, along the Connecticut River. So smack dab in the middle of the state. And her name is Molly Barber. And Molly is, her father is the richest guy in town, Peter Barber. And Molly is, by the standards of her period, which is the middle of the 18th century, Mills, Lewis Mills says it's 1740. That's that date is not something that I can support with any hard data. But middle 18th century sounds about right. Um, okay. She is like in her mid 20s and she's not yet married, which is a little bit out of the ordinary for that period. And in Mills's version, the reason is that none of the none of the suitors who have um, pursued her. Uh, have been suitable. They're unsuitable suitors. So her father, the richest guy in town, decides that all these guys that she's, you know, trying to hook up with are not good enough for his daughter. And the the funny part here is that, and again, this is written in 1952, and it's about something that's supposed to have happened 200 years earlier. Right. In the poem, and there's no way Mill, Mills could know that that Molly actually said this. Molly actually gives her father an ultimatum about, you know, her most recent beau. And what she says, and now I am quoting, cross me now. This is Molly talking to her dad. Cross me now, and I will marry he who next shall seek my hand, be he white or any color. So you get it. Here's a woman, at least according to Mills, in the middle of the 18th century, telling her dad, you know what? You keep throwing out my boyfriends, You know what? If some guy who's not white asks me to marry him, I'm going to say yes. What do you think about that? And in the poem, her father totally freaks out, locks her in their mansion, you know, know, kind of locks her in her room. This will work out well. Yeah, exactly. Um, And won't let her out of the the house until she relents and says, okay, dad, I won't marry somebody outside of my race. 
<laughs> at the same time, completely coincidentally, a young Narragansett Indian man, his name is James Chagum, is born on Block Island, which is an island in Long Island Sound. He has moved onto the mainland. So he's in Rhode Island, Connecticut, along the shore there. And he begins um, learning the ways of the white man, learning to speak English, learning um, of the, you know, getting a feel for the technology of European colonists, and has actually moved up the along the river towns, along the Connecticut River, and has wound up in Wethersfield, the town where Molly's living, at about the time she's given her father her ultimatum. Now, the the big estate that Peter Barber, her father, father owns, he needs people working on the estate. And when this young, healthy Indian man shows up looking for work, he's hired to work on the grounds of the estate. Of course now, he is. Of course, right? Now, what happens next is that apparently... <laughs> James hears about the fact that this wealthy white woman has said she'll marry the next guy who asks because she's mad at her father. And according right. to this is the romantic part. All right. The romantic part of the story is that James climbs up the trellis where the roses are growing and Aww. bangs on Molly's window. She opens. He gives her a rose. And I don't know, love blooms among the roses. And Sure. Essentially, in the poem, you know, Pete, uh, uh, James says to Molly, so I hear you're going to marry the next guy who asks. Is that true? And she says, yeah. And he says, well, OK, I'm asking. And Molly says, sure. And that James yep. and Molly disappear in the middle of the night. OK. Now, according to the story. Did he did he climb up her long golden hair? No, there's no long golden hair in this version of the story. But you can <laughs> add that if you'd like. You know, in the in the kids book version, we can have her letting her let her hair down um, from her her, uh, her room. Anyway, the story is that they they actually hightail it out of there and go up the Connecticut River and then up the Farmington River, which is a tributary of the Connecticut. And they they find themselves literally in the middle of nowhere in northwestern Connecticut. But they find themselves along the Farmington River. There is, in fact, the village. And historically, we know this is true of a group of Indians whose chief's name, at least historically, has been passed down as Chief Cherry. Now, whether that's um, some sort of anglicized version, version of a much longer Indian name, or as some, some stories say, well, he had, uh, he had a thing for cherry wine, and so they called him Chief Cherry, we don't know. Okay. But according to the story, James and Molly actually show up in this village and ask for sanctuary and are given sanctuary by this Indian sachem uh, chief. Um, according to the story that it, at this point, Molly, remember Molly has left her very comfortable home, her wealthy lifestyle, and is living with a man who's a virtual stranger and of another race. Certainly was a big deal back then. Um, right. But she is, is, just absolutely releasing all of her Europeanness and becoming an <laughs> Indian woman. And they say, yeah, she gets rid of her clothes. She starts wearing the clothes of the Indian women. She darkens her hair. She darkens her skin. There's a whole bunch of stuff involved in that. And that a month goes by when... She darkens her skin with, like, makeup yeah, well, or just she well, starts to get tan because she's outside? Air grease or something. Who knows? Air grease. All so right. anyway, again, this is all according to the poem. Uh, right. About a month goes by, and a, a bunch of, of of white guys on horseback 
come into the village, bang on the doors of all the wigwams, and say, everybody out, we're looking for a young white woman. There's a reward. Her father wants her back. And everybody is terrified. They come out of the wigwams. And Molly among them is, is out there. According to the story that Mills tells, these guys go down the line and they look everybody right in the eye, look every woman in the eye, and they look at Molly, but they see an American Indian. They see a Native American woman. They don't think it's a, she's a white woman. And so they say, all right, well, if there's a reward, if you see a white woman, make, be sure to contact the um, people downstream so that we can collect her. They leave. James and Molly totally freaked out by this. They go, what happens if there are more perceptive pursuers next time? What happens if if uh, my father is among them? He's not going to mistake me for somebody else. So James and Molly ask Cherry to Chief Cherry to provision them, and they move even farther northwest along the, the Farmington River into the place that today is called Bark Hampstead. So this is miles and miles away from anything. There are no European settlements. They assume right. that they're safe. They stop at this, this this bend in the river. They leave. They find this terrace above the river, and they say, we, we're not running anymore. This is where we're going to make our stand, and they establish a village, a village of two. Um, <laughs> and in the poem, he, Mills even has Molly sort of, you know, agonizing now. Oh, my God, what have I done? You know, I've I've abandoned my the comforts of my wealthy household all of my friends are are no longer I, I no longer i'm in the company of my friends and i am now in the wilderness in a, a little lean-to and it's because it's getting cold it's the fall and i am living with a man who really is a stranger to me and now this all all of this supposedly happened in the first year they're together yeah. oh yeah absolutely yeah the first okay. the first few months actually okay so Just... so um she mills <laughs> actually has her say you know I, she's 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 weighing her options here and she decides that it's that she's better off facing mountain lions and wolves and bears in the wilderness of northwestern Connecticut than going back to hear her angry father shouting is exactly the way Mills phrases it. So her, her father must have been one hell of a son of a bitch. She's rather, you know, I'm better off here. And according to Mills, not, not only did James and Molly get, it, get through that first winter, not only did they survive, they thrived, and soon thereafter she started having children. And according to Mills, she has eight children over the course, she and James have eight kids over the course of their lives and talks about this, this community, this family, into which other people kind of wandering through Northwestern Connecticut, they see this little community with its own husband and wife and all these kids, mixed race and other people, uh, Native Americans, uh, landless and disenfranchised white people, uh, people of African descent uh, start being attracted to this little community because they're accepted. It's the middle, it's the wilderness. Nobody owns the land. You can squat on it. And this community grows as the family grows. And then eventually, because people are moving into the community, the children of James and Molly, they grow up there, they get married, they have kids of their own. And after a time, we've got this, this, this community that the outside world is completely unfamiliar with, doesn't know exists, and yet it's here it is in northwestern Connecticut, um, this community of people of different 
um, ethnicities, different cultures, different backgrounds, different histories, all accumulating on this mountain. I'm, I'm reading this in the poems thinking, if any of this is true at all, it's spectacular. <laughs> what an interesting community that basically has had very little history done on it, but has this legend, has this poem. Um, so I decided at that point, I said, you know what? This looks like, a sp I mean, here's, this has fallen into my lap, this mystery or legend of the lighthouse. Why is it called a lighthouse? Who are these people? Is any of the story that Mills tells actually true? And so... I devote then I back then now this is you know years a few years go by I'm doing other projects and in the early 1990s we begin doing serious archaeological research and serious documentary research of this community and the thing that's incredibly cool is we find out that at least the skeleton of that story a young white woman living someplace along the Connecticut River marries a Narragansett Indian man. They disappear into the wilderness. They begin having children. Other people of, again, other ethnicities move into this community. Uh, that, that, that part of the story, that's all true. And we can support it with documentary evidence and the archaeological evidence absolutely complements what we see in the documentary record. Um, just, just as a little side piece here, the, why is it why why in the hell is a village located in northwestern Connecticut called the Lighthouse? And yeah, we actually it's really still we here. actually have that Mills figured that one out. Um, the road I called it East River Road. That's the name of the road. Um, I actually right now I live on East River Road, which is kind of cool. Um, so East River Road was at one point the Farmington River Turnpike. So all throughout New England, we have these turnpikes and the turnpikes, which today are, many of them are paved major thoroughfares, um, getting from place to place here in New England. But originally uh -huh. they were stagecoach roads. You know, in the, in, the, um, in the stereotype, we think of stagecoaches being, well, that's out West with, you know, John Wayne and those guys. We had stagecoaches yeah. here in New England as well. The, uh, what we call the Albany Turnpike, it was, in fact, uh, a, a stagecoach road from Albany to Hartford and then ultimately to Boston. And now it's Route 44 in Connecticut. It's a major road, you know, two lanes in each direction. Um, uh, Farming River Turnpike, which is now East River Road, was a feeder road for the Albany Turnpike. And most of these turnpikes were private enterprises. You know, the, you, everybody loves Toll House cookies. Well, those toll houses are where people who own these narrow bands of land collected payment so that you could could go on that road with your stagecoach. So the Farming River Turnpike, which is East River Road, which is the road we were on when we first saw the plaque and had just come down off of the, the terrace overlooking the road, that Farming River Turnpike um, becomes a turnpike in like 1790. And so okay. stagecoaches, for the first time now, this isolated community, which already was there, was seeing regular traffic right outside their doors. And the story is that it was the stagecoach drivers who gave the community its name. Because what if you're going from, say, Albany to Hartford, you're best, basically much of that trip is through an uncharted wilderness. I mean, you've got the okay. stagecoach ah. road, but there are very few communities along that road. And no GPS, no odometers. Right, right, and right. And what these, according to a number of historical sources, 
what these these stagecoach guys when they would see the, the you know the smoke rising from the hearth fires when they would see the the illumination of the fires in the windows of these little cabins along the side of that mountain they would say there's our lighthouse where five miles until port and port was the town of New Hartford, Connecticut, where there was an inn where on this long trip from Albany to Hartford, you could stop, you could get, you could water your horses, you can get a meal, you could pr get provisions, and then continue on 25 more miles to Hartford. Today, that 25-mile trip on what is now Route 44 will still take you about 45, 50 minutes, even an hour in traffic. So back then with a stagecoach, <laughs> That took that was that was a very that was still a long and arduous journey, yeah. um, and it, it, yeah, even in Connecticut, it was a long and arduous journey, and there were turnpike robbers, and uh, we have a there's a part of the Farmington River is called Satan's Kingdom, and it's a narrow oh, gorge, and in that narrow gorge, we had we had crooks who in the 1700s and 1800s were hiding in the in that gorge. And when the stagecoach would cross the river, they would attack it and steal stuff. So we have our own version of, you know, the outlaw gangs that were living here in Connecticut um, right. a couple hundred years ago, 300 years ago. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> um, so the deal is, so they're, they're the guys who ostensibly were calling it the lighthouse and that name stuck. When I looked further, I found a couple of things. I found a map that was made in Connecticut in 1879. And that map is a, a famous map in an atlas of the towns of Connecticut. And that map shows things like graveyards and schools and factories. So it's, it's kind of a, a general map of a cultural map of Connecticut, 1879. If you look at the, and the map is in sections. If you look at the map along the coast, you see an icon used repeatedly and consistently for a lighthouse. And those represent where there were actual lighthouses. When you look at this 1879 map, uh, which is a hundred years after the, the community was, was settled, maybe a little more, right. there's an, the, the lighthouse icon that you see all along the coast, smack dab in the little bar Hampstead there's a lighthouse icon. So in 1879, when this guy was uh, was making this map, somebody told him there's a lighthouse in Barkhamstead. He probably said, what the hell are you talking about? It's, uh, it's 60 miles from the coast. They said, trust me, there's a place called Lighthouse. You, you need that icon there. So that's pretty cool, but even cooler. And you know what, Sarah, I think I'll, I'll send you, I've got a, a photograph of this and I'll send it to you. You can post it if you want on the blog. I found... Um, uh, now, the, the town in Connecticut, it was the responsibility of town clerks to keep track of births and deaths and marriages. So the, the state didn't take 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 um, those records and keep those records uh, back 200 years ago. Our counties in Connecticut are virtually meaningless. So we have, I don't know, five or six counties in Connecticut, but they don't mean anything. There's no such thing as a county seat. We don't have a county, you know, county courthouse. It's, it's everything falls to the towns. So the town of Bark Hampstead, it was their responsibility to keep track of births and deaths. And so you, it's, it's great. You go, it's like doing an archaea, it's like digging in documents where you sit there and you go over these, these pages you know, these kind of linen sheets and some and 200 years ago a town clerk drew a bunch of lines and made a little you know a spreadsheet and wrote in the names of babies born the dates of their birth and on and on and on 
So it's in, in a birth record for 1858, I think it is. I'm going down that list. I'm seeing the names. Uh, you know, one of the columns is um, where the, 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 the name of the baby. And if the baby doesn't have a name yet, when the town clerk is recording it, that's left blank. Because kid maybe uh-huh. hadn't been baptized yet, hadn't been christened yet, so the kid has no name. Um, right. Uh, the, the the sex of the child is listed, whether it's a male or a female. Um, the names of the parents, the ages of the parents. Um, it's good to have these kind of documents. Oh, it's though. amazing. I, yeah. I, I mean, if if I had if I could go back in time, you know, people say, well, if you went back in time, what would you change? And people say, well, I would go back in time and I would, you know, I would kill Hitler or I would go back in time and I would buy, you know, IBM stock before it got really big. I would go back in time and give every town clerk in the ta- in the in the, the state of Connecticut a typewriter, so that they could <laughs> type their records. So I wouldn't have to read yeah. their horrible handwriting. Yeah. But anyway, but that's you know that's just me. I have a warped uh, pers- warped um, priorities. But anyway, um, as I'm going down this list, I see that that there's a baby born. Um, a little girl, no name given, in oh. I think it's March in 1858, and I see the names of the parents, and the names of the parents are Mary Webster and Solomon Webster. The thing is, as I'm doing other documentary research, I determine that Solomon Webster was a Mohegan Indian, so he's a Native American, who moved uh-huh. into the community and married, a, I believe, a granddaughter of James and Molly. So Mary, this Mary, whose name now is Mary Webster, is in fact a granddaughter of James and Molly Chagum. So, oh my nice. God, this is what, this is amazing. Yeah. And now here's the deal. So they're born, so the child is born. The, um, the, the remember the, the, that Saul is a, nat- uh, um, yeah, Saul is a Native American. We know that. Right. Mary is of mixed race. That is one of her grandparents is white, one of her grandparents is is a Native American. And so she is, she's mixed. She is whatever percentage you want to figure out. So she's she's got um, Native American ancestry and Euro-American ancestry. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. there's a column on the this sheet in Barkhamstead for color, the color of the baby. Uh-huh. Every child born. Because these things are important. Oh, yeah. You've got to keep it. You know, for, for various reasons, the towns of Connecticut, as elsewhere, are keeping track of the race or color of, of every child born. The color of every other baby born in Barkhamstead um, is either W for white and there's uh-huh. N for Negro. And that's uh-huh. every, and for the vast majority of the of the children born in the mid nineteenth century here in in Barkhamstead are W's. Right. I have never seen this designation anywhere else, or or seen it before, or seen it since. And it's great for this little okay. baby, this baby born. Her dad is a Native American. Her mother is mixed. The color is given not as white, but it clearly says nearly white. 
nearly white. Nearly white. How's that for a racial designation? I mean, the thing that gets me is that here we are in the 21st century grappling with these issues about race and how do we define that and how does somebody define who they are because there's so much admixture and you get the census and you have to say, well, you're white or you're black or you're Hispanic and Hispanic are race. So we, we have all these issues about race today. Well, here in 1858, the town clerk of Park Hampstead takes a look at this baby and says, oh, I don't know, not an Indian, <laughs> not white. We'll call the kid nearly white, which yeah, is great. But the, the, I guess, the, you know, that's a cool story. But the reason for my telling the story is that the final column on this birth record is an indication of where do the parents live. Now, the vast majority of the parents people giving birth in Barkhamstead, living in Barkhamstead. There's one child who's the place of, of the, the um, of the parents, where the parents live, is Lenox, Massachusetts, which is up um, northwest of here. So not every not every child born in Barkhamstead is born to parents who live in Barkhamstead full time. But for right. the most part they are Barkhamstead, Barkhamstead, Barkhamstead. The child born in 1858 to Saul and Mary, whose racial, whose color is designated as nearly white, the community of the parents of that child is listed as Barkhamstead Lighthouse. So no matter how the name started, it is there is an official town document designating the part of town where these people live and clearly stating the place is called Barkhamstead Lighthouse. So there's no question at all that was a real designation for this place. So that was really pretty cool. In doing the documentary research, we have been able to verify mo most of at least the general um, claims made by Lewis Mills in his poem. Mills did a, I mean, it's a spectacular piece of work to think that here's this guy in 19, the 1950s with, you don't know the internet, you don't have genealogy.com, you know, you're, you're basically looking at newspaper accounts and, 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 you know, birth records and death records. He came up with a pretty accurate description of what had happened at least once James and Molly established a community in Barkhamstead. It really was a place called the Lighthouse. Oh, and you know what? The births of the, you know, the original record that says, well, his, his poem that says there were eight children. Not uh -huh. only is that true, I can name every one of those kids. I, you know, there's, there's Solomon Chagum and Samuel Chagum, and there's, there's Mary, there's a Mary who's, who's called Polly. Um, there's Meribah and there's Elizabeth and there's Susan. Um, we also know that of the eight children, think about that. Think about this 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 pampered white woman living in Weatherfield, Connecticut, abandons her home, living in the wilderness with with um, uh, uh, with a, a virtual stranger, at least initially. Right. Has eight children. Of those eight children, seven of them reached adulthood. Now, in back in the nineteenth <laughs> century, that's amazing. Yeah, that's, um, you look, that's really good. You walk around cemeteries here, you know, in my in my area, and it is pretty common to see about maybe as high as 50 percent, fifty half of kids dying uh, before the age of twenty. So right. either they they die in childbirth, they die in their early years, or they die in their teen years, and it's accidents and disease and for 
Um, drowning is a real big one. Getting thrown by a horse is another big one. But certainly a lot of uh, tuberculosis kills a lot of folks. Um, right. And, and seasonal afflictions are, uh, we, you know, we, they're not always recorded on gravestones or recorded in the death records. But some of these things appear seasonally and, and you know, very predictable and without medical, adequate medical attention, people are dying in great numbers. To have seven right. out of eight of your kids reach adulthood is amazing. Um, yeah. And of the seven who survive to adulthood, six of them get married. The, nice. One child, Elizabeth, actually never marries, but all the others marry. And in many cases, we can actually find the names of their kids and their kids' kids in the archaeological, in the, in the documentary record, which is just amazing. Now, we have, I haven't talked about archaeology much yet, but we have actually <laughs> done archaeology at the site. I you have you have talked about archaeology because people don't understand that there's right. a lot of research that goes into this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, that a lot of times people say, well, how about digging? We did that. But in order to make <laughs> the digging make some sense, in order to put the digging in context, you need to do the historical uh, historical documentation. You need to know who if we can find out who these people were, which of the houses they lived in. Um, right. That's pretty cool stuff. Yeah. And also, I will tell you kind of to, to, to get to more towards the end of the story and then go back. Um, the, the actually the first person who lived at the lighthouse who I encountered was Molly in the in the documentary record. When I started looking at records that might allow me to, to examine the veracity of the Lewis Mills poem, um, I went through the death records of newspapers published in Connecticut in the early 19th century. And now Lewis Mills tells in the story, he says that Molly Chagum, Molly, the woman who was named Molly Barber, um, the name she was born with, Molly Barber, that Molly Chagum died in 1820. And when, when Lewis Mills did the math, that meant she was 105 years old, which is kind of crazy um yeah folks i mean people usually assume that everybody died young back in the you know the early the, the uh, 17th 18th and 19th centuries that's not true the mean age of death is much lower than it is today but you will still find people who lived into their 80s and 90s and even low hundreds um during that period so it's not out of the question that molly could have been 105 uh, but I thought that was a gross exaggeration. So the first thing I do is I go, I'm looking at death records around 1820. I find Molly's obituary. And it's it's not a long, it's not a lengthy description of her life. It's essentially who she was, year she died, how old she right. was, and where she died. And I found that Mrs. M. Chagum died in Barkhamstead in 1818. Uh while living at her son-in-law, William Wilson's house. And a William Wilson, we find out, in fact, was married to one of James and Molly's daughters. So that's perfect. Nice. And That's good to find that kind of a chain, though. Oh, it's amazing. And, yeah. But she was not 105 years old, Sarah. According to the Hartford Current, she was 104. <laughs> oh, yeah. wow. Now, wow. back in the... Now, hang on, hang on. Before we go any yeah, further, we got, we got to take our last break. Um, and if you don't wrap it up, then that's fine. We'll just, uh, we'll just do another show. Yeah, you bet. No, we'll wrap it up. We'll wrap it up. All right. So when we come back, Ken's going to 
get more into the the digging archaeology or just finish the story because this is really cool. All right, there we go. Finish the story. <laughs> The Archaeology and Ale podcast presents a monthly series of lectures on all aspects of archaeology. These lectures are part of the Archaeology in the City program, hosted by the University of Sheffield in England, and are held at the Red Deer Pub near the end of the month. The podcast can be heard a few days later. Check out the Red Deer if you're in the area, or find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, and we're back, and Ken, go. Yeah. This is good stuff. So here's the deal, Sarah. So, yeah, the, the, look, the archaeology is super, super interesting. And we, we were essentially what we find at that site is that these were really poor folks who were essentially relying on the cast-offs of the growing Euro-American population in northwestern Connecticut, So which is really cool. So we, you, you don't find, like, sets of dishes. You find... All, all kinds of different pieces of crockery. And, you know, right. once, once that stagecoach road opens up, you know, that, then, then all bets are off because they're able to access all kinds of trade items. And especially as other folks are moving into the area, bringing their material culture with them. It's all really cool. But right. what I wanna, the thing I want to talk about here at the end is how archaeology really connects, can connect, it, on, on a very important level, um, intellectually, but also emotionally, with living people. Yeah. James and Molly have a bunch of kids. Their kids have a bunch of kids. Their kids have a bunch of kids. Those people are still here. The descendants yeah, of James and Molly are still there. Are still yeah, still there. So, you know, on, in, um, this is back in the early 90s, and a local TV station came out and did, you know, the human interest report on the archaeology of the lighthouse. Tell us the lighthouse story. So we do that. The next day, we are we broken for lunch. We're down along the road there, the way we where we first were the, when we when we discovered the site. I'm putting discover in scare quotes. And a pickup truck rolls into the area, and out of the pickup truck um, comes this this bear of a man, this huge guy, um, older man. Big beer belly, wearing a, a you know baseball cap, and a big black dog inside the car, inside the pickup. And I'm I'm sitting on the ground here. I don't know who this guy is. A lot of people stop by there all the time. They get they go fishing by the river. But he walks right up to me because clearly he's seen me on the television. And he is he's Sarah. I'm not a big guy, man. <laughs> and he this guy's huge. And he's a you know he's 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 older, but he looks like he probably could break me like a twig. Um, and he's glaring down at me, and I'm so I figure oh, I'm going to stand up, and I'm wondering whether my field crew will back me up here. Um, so I stand up, and he's just he's just looking at me with kind of a bemused look, and <laughs> I say, oh, "Can I help you?" He Sarah he puts out his hand to me, and he says to me, "Shake my hand." And I said, "Okay, okay, I will," and I shake his hand. And he, and he points up to the hill and he says, you've just shaken hands with one of them. I'm a descendant of Jimmy Chogham. Oh, I thought, nice. oh, my God. And Sarah, here's the part that that I think. This is the part that moved me. Um, me and and Mr. Ch and this guy's name is Ray Ellis. 
and he's passed away now. Uh, Ray Ellis, me, and Rags, the dog, walked up to the site. He had never been. He had never been to the site. And when I asked him about that, he said, well, around here, being a descendant of those Indians on the hill was kind of a shameful thing. So we hid it from people. We didn't want anybody to know because the story was, oh, they were just a bunch of drunken Indians, you know, no accounts, worthless. And so even, this is 1990, even though that's, you know, 150 years after the site was abandoned, 140 years, it was still something to be ashamed about. And so he had never really talked to anybody about it, but because, honest to God, because a professor at a university was expressing an interest in the community where his ancestors lived, he suddenly felt like he's validated. He can tell people, hey, this is an important story. A professor is looking at it. I don't take any credit for that, but it made me feel really good that my work was having this impact. Sarah, I brought him to the cemetery. There is, in fact, a cemetery with simple field stones that, that date back to the period of occupation. There's no writing on the stones, but it clearly is a cemetery. And and Mr. Ellis, I brought Ray Ellis to the cemetery. And I'm doing my, you know, my shtick, my archaeology lecture right. about this all. And I look over to him, Sarah, he's crying. Aww. This gigant, giant bear of a man, probably at this point in his 70s, was crying. And I, I realized for the first time that this archaeology I was doing was not just about me satisfying my curiosity about a historical mystery or legend. It was about giving back to people who were the descendants, who are the descendants of James and Molly, giving back part of their story, the story as much as I could reveal through my research. Um, since that time, I have met literally dozens, dozens of descendants um, and I want to give a shout out to Connie Dubois. Connie Dubois is a, I think she's eighth or ninth generation descendant of James and Molly. Connie's li- <laughs> Connie lives, was living at the time, I think in Indiana. You're right. Oh my. And, and yeah. her dad told her when she was growing up as a kid in Indiana, we are descendants of an Indian group in Connecticut. And someday when you grow up, I want you to, to study about it because I don't know very much about it. <laughs> Connie grows up, now is living in near New Orleans. She's living in Louisiana. She's married, got a bunch of kids. And her father at this at this point, this is several years ago, is dying. He's on his deathbed. And he said, Aww. Connie, I want to know. I want you to help me out here. Tell me who we are. And Connie contacted me. How the hell she figured out that there was some some archaeology prof at, at, at Connecticut who was studying her ancestors. I, I, I still don't know. It was like magic. She contacted <laughs> me. I gave her all the information I could. She shared it with her dad. Her dad, her dad then passed away. Connie has devoted the last, God, it's got to be eight years now, to, to filling out the genealogy of James and Molly. And the best part is that this past summer, Connie came back to Connecticut and that this is she's you know she's a working woman living in in Louisiana. Her her husband works on an oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico. She <laughs> came and and set up through a Facebook page a Chagum descendant family reunion, and sixty of these people showed up so that they nice. could see the village where their their ancestors lived, so they could visit the um, the the cemetery. And we had a big party. 
I was invited to the party. The town of Barkhamstead, this was July 4th, the town of Barkhamstead invited Connie and all of the descendants to march in the July 4th parade. And this is, this is, I never thought this is something that I would look on as, as, as something that would almost make me tear up. The descendants <laughs> invited me to be an honorary member of their family. And I Aww. marched at the front of the parade with the descendants of James Chagum and Molly Barber. I, I just can't even begin to tell you how moving that was for me. And what was kind of really cool, and if, if my research has played any role in this, I take no credit for it, but how great is it that the, the, the descendants used to be ashamed of being uh, the descendants of James and Molly because all oh, the drunken Indians. When we march in that parade, the people lining the route, who for the most part are not descendants, but are, you know, people who've moved into town fairly recently, right. those people yelled out at us, welcome home, welcome back Aww. to the descendants of James and Molly. It was just in, it was amazing. It was amazing that a project that begins as, well, this is cool. This is kind of interesting. I'm curious about it. Let's do some archaeology. Ends yeah. up contributing to the story of an otherwise kind of maligned and marginalized group of people. And I'm, I am incredibly proud of that. It's not, I'm not taking credit. I'm not doing that. But I'm proud of the fact oh. that this research has been able to touch people in that really personal way. Um, and the last thing I'll tell you, and then everybody can cry who's listening to this, uh, Mr. Ellis <laughs> um, died a few years ago and I was in oh. contact with his daughter. And at the end, Mr. Ellis um, was suffering from dementia and you know had his good days and bad days. And he was yeah. in a, a assisted living community. And um, in 1994, I wrote a book called The Village of Outcasts, which is out of print but hopefully I'm going to, I think I'm going to try to do a create space version of the book. I have the, the copyrights to the, to the, the story now, the, the book itself, talking about the archaeology yeah. and talking about the, the, um, uh, the documentary research. And I'm going to try to get it, that, yeah. I'm going to try to get it back in print. But anyway, it was published in 1994 and I gave a copy to Mr. Ellis. It was my gift to him. And there's actually a photograph, full size full page photograph of Mr. Ellis at the cemetery with rags, with, with his big black dog. dog. And what his daughter told me was that towards the end of Mr. Ellis's life, when he really was not, you know, he had good days and bad days. The one right. thing that made him happy was when she would open that book, the book that I had given him about his ancestors. And she would read the, read the story about how he had helped me uh, understand the significance of the research. That that's the thing, the one thing that would make him smile towards the end of his life. Aww. And that's just kind of mind blowing. You know, as archaeologists, we sometimes are are very distant from the people whose lives we are studying. But yeah. in this case, no man, it was it was immediate and real. And you know, I, I thank Mr. Ellis, I thank Connie Dubois, and I think all of the, all the descendants of James and Molly who have kind of taken me into their hearts and have uh, have have made me feel like you know the research i did has had this really this very very personal impact on their lives and that's you know it just doesn't get any better than that no but that's really cool though i mean this has just been i mean that's just a really great story and a really great application of you know archaeology yeah. impacting people's lives because it's 
as small as that family may have started off, they're obviously part of the larger community at this point with that many living descendants. That's that's a good sized chunk of people. And you know what's cool is that that Lewis Mills towards the end of the poem talks about the lighthouse descendants as an ever widening circle, like ripple, like a ripple across a pond. And man, yeah. there are lighthouse descendants living in California, living in Canada, living throughout the, the Midwest. It's a really great story. And um, within the last few years, the state of Connecticut has a has a program of of naming of designating archaeological preserves. So these are usually sites that are on state land where we say, hey, listen, this place has been excavated archaeologically. This is a really important site. And we're going to, you know. And the two, one of the things that this allows for is the production of a pamphlet. So the state of Connecticut has published a pamphlet that I wrote about the lighthouse. It's 24 pages. It's full color. Um, you can get it from the you know, State Historic Preservation Office, has hundreds of copies. Um, and it tells that. So, so designating the site as, a, as an archaeological preserve provided that money. And then the... Um, uh, a, a local environmental group had some extra cash and they actually funded signage at the site. So today when cool. you drive down East River Road, there's a big sign right at the trailhead telling the story of it's just past where that boulder is with the plaque that, right. that my student found. Well, just beyond that is this nice sign that tells the story. It's got some photographs. And when you follow the trail, it's in fact a new trail. It's the Lighthouse Trail that brings you through the site. And at, at six places along the trail, there are these small signs, very, very nicely done signs, that, that tell the story of the cemetery, that tell the story of the foundations, that tell the story of the of the um, the, the charcoal furnaces that were that were where they were producing charcoal by the people nice. who live there. It's it's just it's really nice um, and that people walk through there. And the, the thing when I'm there and people are walking through, the cool thing is they'll turn to me and say, "I had no idea this was here." I said, "Well, you know, this is the kind of thing that archaeologists need to do a better job of of broadcasting." The real deal. That, that's that, right. to get back to where what our podcast is all about. This is why it just frosts me, pisses me off that there can be television shows devoted week after week to absolute bullshit about the past, and we yeah. have a story like this one. That this is the kind of thing I would like to see highlighted on cable TV. You know, real archaeology, really interesting stories. In this case, a, a personally heartwarming story about the contribution that archaeology can make to both our understanding of the past, but also to our contribution archaeology can make to improving the lives of, of, of living people. That's the stuff right. I'd like to see on the History Channel, not right. the crap that we are um, – exposed to on a weekly basis right and this story i mean this story would be you could make it pretty i mean someone's already made an epic out of it right but you could make this story pretty epic enough to keep someone's attention for like at least four episodes you i would, mean miniseries are great there you go you would think you would think so you would if you think. have any contacts out there sarah <laughs> with, right. with producers television producers you let me know so, you know, Chris keeps Chris keeps saying that he's gonna he wants to start a, a television show about archaeology. Maybe this is a, a launching. Well, listen, for that. yeah, you know what? Well, when Chris listens to this, Chris, this is for me to you, man. Well, I'm ready to talk. You talk to my agent. I don't have an agent. I, I have a cat, though. But that's that's about as as close as I get to having an agent. And by agent, I mean my cat. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Ken, that's a great story. Well, I really thanks. like it. I, you know what? I, I, if, if people were turn, tuning into the podcast and hoping we could hear another trashing of 
bad archaeology. And if you're disappointed, I apologize. But it's a really good story, and it's a, I think it, it 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 shows how even a story that starts off as a legend or a mystery, we can the, the tools we have as archaeologists are that they render us able to to uh, solve those mysteries and to to assess the reality, the veracity of those legends. I think finding true stories is always more interesting than making something up. I mean, fantasy is great and all that, but the true story there, even with a little bit, a little bit of embellishment with that, with the cool poem, but, you know, I mean, it's still, it got you started. Oh, absolutely. It was the thing that inspired the research in the first place. Right. Right. That and the really cool plaque there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and a weird name called the lighthouse. The lighthouse. Well, Ken, thanks for sharing that Oh, yeah, us. absolutely, Sarah. This was great fun, and I hope everybody out there listening to the podcast enjoys it. I do, too. All right, thanks, man. Talk you to bet. you later. Bye-bye. No way down to a dinosaur. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it and possibly learned something new or useful. If you like what you've heard, please head over to the iTunes or wherever you can and rate and review us. Share us wherever you socialize online and send us an email at archiefantasies at gmail.com with your questions, comment, or just angry emails. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow us on iTunes and you can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates at Archiefantasies on Twitter and Tumblr. Also, you can look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes with links to things we've discussed in this episode, check out the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. And thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.